0: Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation. For 25 years, partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships, on the web at mainecf.org. It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next.
1: Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. With everything else on our family and community plates, avian flu pandemic might seem a distant story, the topic of a made-for-television movie. But last month, organizers of a workshop simulated the very real impacts of the flu pandemic on Maine communities. On this morning's program, we've invited organizers of The Sky is Falling, a workshop to help towns prepare for avian influenza, to share what they found out about our readiness to confront such a disaster and what you should know as a citizen and community member. So I'm very happy to uh, welcome Doug Michael back to Talk of the Towns. Welcome to you, Doug. Doug, you're the executive director of Healthy Acadia. Good morning, Ron, and thanks for having us. Great. And uh, with uh, Doug is Dana Reed. Dana is the town manager of Bar Harbor. Welcome to you, Dana. Hi, Ron. It's always a pleasure. And we have uh, Linda Fury. Linda is the deputy director of the Hancock County Emergency Management Office. Welcome to you, Linda.
2: And welcome. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Yeah. And then Janice Van Brook. Um, Janice is with the Jackson Laboratory, and she was part of the planning committee, and she's with us by phone. Welcome to you, Janice.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Great. Well, um, I'll start with Doug. I think you were one of the prime movers to get this uh, workshop started, um, and you've been meeting for a number of, a uh, couple of years, I guess, in terms of thinking about pandemic. Um, is that right? 18 months or so. Um, why did you hold this workshop, Doug?
4: Well, I think the primary reason that we decided to hold the workshop was that there were a number of us uh, community-based organizations and municipalities that had been meeting in the Mount Desert Island region for a couple of years, planning for and preparing for the inevitability of this kind of a, an, an outbreak. And uh, we realized that the scale and the scope of this kind of emergency was so severe and so critical to our communities that we We couldn't rely only on ourselves and the services that we could provide, but we really needed to engage a broader broader scale and scope of our communities in terms of private citizens, uh, local employers, um, and other community-based organizations and schools in planning for and preparing for this
5: kind of a public health emergency.
1: Mm. Dana, why why did you see it as as an important aspect of your work?
5: Well, it's interesting. When I started talking to people from the Jackson Laboratory, from the College of the Atlantic, uh, I learned that in the hospital, I learned that this is a a type of an emergency that affects more than just your typical emergency services, Mm -hmm. more than just fire and police Mm -hmm. and ambulance crews. Mm -hmm. Uh, The college is worried about, okay, so if all these kids get sick, who's going to be taking care of them? Right. Uh, We don't have that kind of staff. Uh, The Jackson Laboratory is worried about how they will make sure they can take care of all their animals and fulfill their critical research functions without being crippled by a 40% absentee rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's a much bigger project than just me organizing the town staff, so we decided to broaden that to the much larger community. Mm.
1: Janice, how about you Um, by phone, um, working with the Jackson Lab, why were you involved? Why did you see this as important?
3: Well, part of my responsibility at the Jackson Laboratory is uh, coordinating operations continuity and that's very important to us. And um, it's very important to be part of the community. Uh, We have been working hard on our emergency response and our operations recovery and right now we are in fact um, um, working with each of our, or just about. We just started a pilot, and we're just about to work with each of our departments on pandemic response. So um, it was really interesting to hear what other people are doing, what other businesses and facilities are planning, and. Um, we're all starting to realize that we have to take care of ourselves so we we need to find out what what we can do and what others can do
1: mm. and Linda this must must have been somewhat of a gift not too many people get excited about pandemics and and emergencies you've got that full-time responsibility um, as part of the Hancock County um, emergency management office um, what was your uh, take on as, as this process got started
2: well actually we've always uh, planned for all hazards and uh, infectious disease isn't any different, uh, but the focus after 9/11 really shifted to homeland security rather strongly. And uh, in recent years, we've really tried to get back to all hazards approaches. and um, this really helped to spur momentum mm. in getting the communities to look at their emergency operation plans and make sure that all the hazards were identified. So, uh, it was really kind of the impetus that gave us a little edge to get mm. people thinking a little bit more about uh, updating their emergency plans. Mm-hmm.
1: Besides um, this group that's here on the radio with us, Doug, what other kinds of people were involved in planning um, this this kind of exercise? Uh, you mentioned College of the Atlantic. Uh, who else was was part of the the circle as you went around? Or Dana, do you have uh, people that you remember? Well,
5: a big part of it has been the, the uh, MDI Hospital. Mm. It's interesting, when we started talking about pandemic planning in Bar Harbor, it became obvious pretty early on that this is a problem that's really a regional issue, Mm -hmm. and more more than likely any response is going to be focused around the service area of the hospital, which uh, I guess not coincidentally is also the service area of the MDI League of Towns which I chair. Mm. And so this was a natural forum to bring some of these town managers of those eight towns together along with the hospital staff. And the hospital is quite involved with this. So they have to do their own emergency planning mm. and have people involved from almost every department with our planning efforts.
1: And that brought the towns brought their, their police chiefs.
5: Yeah, the, the, the towns... Uh, well, and fire chiefs, I suppose. Everyone, all, not everybody. every town has responsibility for every function. Right. Uh, so, uh, they're also we've also involved the health nursing staff, uh, community health nursing staffs. Uh, we've also involved emer- the ambulance crews, uh, which right. many times on the island are physically separate. Uh, we've all, we've had some interest from some of our outer island neighbors, although it's a little bit difficult for them to participate. Uh, but at least there is some interest there and they're kind of paying attention to what's going on. So it really is quite a broad spectrum of people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's recently broadened even a little bit more. We're getting some volunteers from around the community with various backgrounds. Uh, the so churches as a result were,
1: of the conference. That's our workshops. conference, okay. exactly. And,
5: the, and churches were are expressing some interest too, which would be Uh, you know, a great source of volunteers and knowing who the elderly and shut-ins are.
1: Mm. Doug, could you give us a um, kind of a definition of flu pandemic? Um, How is that different than the flu that we Mm -hmm. generally hear? And and probably sounds like I've got the flu, but (laughs) I think it's just a cold.
4: What is a flu pandemic? Well, I think you, as you mentioned, many of us are quite familiar with seasonal flu, Uh, and particularly this time of year when we've uh, for the last month or so when our communities are faced with a lot of different viruses traveling around we we tend to have this very predictable uh, outbreak of seasonal flu that hits maybe in uh, late january february march and extends into april in our communities but pandemics are are sort of a much different kind of a uh, of an outbreak and it's it's not only a localized outbreak but it's a regional outbreak and a global outbreak so we have not only disease traveling uh, across and within our communities but at the same time we have these kinds of outbreaks happening in all communities across the united states and and in all countries across the world so when we reach that stage of disease transmission we call it a pandemic Um, and as as you can sort of wrap your head around that it's 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 uh all-encompassing because it's not only affecting our local community but it's affecting everybody's community. And so when we think about our need for healthcare services or for medicines or for supplies, um, we have to think quite differently because now all communities everywhere need the same things that we do. And unlike some types of public health emergencies or disease outbreaks where we can rally resources from one area to support another community, Um, it becomes much more difficult to do so in this kind of a uh, a situation. So a hurricane for instance,
1: we have a localized effect and we can marshal resources to help that community. What Mm -hmm. you're saying is that all communities would be affected in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. I th- I think of the flu pandemic of what 1918 1917 as the as the one in historically that um our grandparents might have uh, experienced uh, um and and so there was a sense of this is happening everywhere they might not have known it though they mm-hmm. might have only experienced it from a local we didn't have the kind of communications that we have today <laughs> so um that's that's a, a real difference are there other differences
4: between mm-hmm. um 1918 and and now do you think that's a good point, and and I think the the fact that uh, you know like s- certain types of events, such as you know we can all think about a, a very recent large scale public health disaster, Katrina, the hurricane, right. and we talk in terms of a hurricane hitting a region or an area, and we can see it on radar, we can visualize it, we can see the wind, the destruction, the rain coming. Um, unlike that kind of an event, with a pandemic or a viral outbreak. It is largely silent and non-visual. We can't see it. We can't hear it coming. So uh, in, when we're in the midst of an outbreak, unless we look at our surveillance systems and we look at the data that we're getting back from laboratories and from doctor's offices and schools, we really don't know to the extent that the disease is transmitting within our communities. so like the recession. Absolutely. (laughs) So when we go back to the 1918 outbreak, there were many lessons learned from that very severe pandemic event. Uh, But one was that uh, there were many communities that were in denial about the existence of the disease. Mm. And so we know when we look back at how different communities and community organizations responded, those that uh... were a little more tuned in and responded more quickly and uh... in ways that they would uh, distance populations from each other close schools more quickly set up emergency resources and provide public information well they fared much better they had much lower rates of transmission and much lower rates of death uh, due to that disease. Mm. I'm
1: going to bring Janice into this because, Janice, you, you uh, talked about uh, the, the title of the workshop. Um, you titled this the, the Sky is Falling and referenced Chicken Little. Tell yep. us that story.
3: Well, I don't know if you know the story of Chicken Little, but an acorn dropped on her head, and she ran around the dooryard saying, The sky is falling, the sky is falling, I must go tell the king and her fear was communicated to all of the animals around her. There are many versions of this fable, but one entry ends by saying, the chicken jumps to a conclusion and whips the populace into mass hysteria. We feel that chicken little might have come to a better end had she done a little research on acorns, MapQuest and Foxes, so that she could have been better prepared to make good decisions for her emergency. We, we really held our The skies Falling workshop to raise awareness of a possible pandemic influenza and to offer resources and education so that all the community leaders could be better prepared.
1: And, as Doug said, um, to, to avoid the denial factor uh, that this might um, not be something. Well, um, I think there's no better way um, to describe this. First, though, I, where would a pandemic start? Doug, uh, the avian flu pandemic, um, what mm-hmm. do we
4: know about that and, and why are we worried about it now? Well, any, <clears throat> any flu pandemic starts with the virus. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are several viruses that are being tracked right now. The one that we hear most about is called H5N1, and it is the one that is affecting bird populations, or we call it also avian flu. And uh, that one has um, some risk and some potential to mutate to the kind of a virus that would be highly transmissible between people. Mm. And where once that happens, we would anticipate a rapid spread of disease. Right now, uh, people are getting infected from this particular bird virus directly from the animals, but we really don't have any evidence yet that that there is any person to person transmission. And if and when we start seeing that particular virus mutate to the form where it would tr- transmit person to person, then, then sort, sort of our, our alarm factor raises and we would go to a different stage of public health alert. Um, but any, any pandemic starts with a virus. And, and that gives us a clue that there are ways that we can prevent the spread of virus. Um, but generally with a pandemic flu situation, we don't have immunity to that. It's a new virus. Um, populations have little or no immunity to it, so therefore, once it reaches human-to-human transmission, it spreads quite rapidly and globally. Mm.
1: And no chance to really set up um, some kind of, of uh, protection to take a, um, a shot for this particular thing. We take shots for the for the seasonal flu virus. This would happen so fast that we wouldn't have that kind of medical um, intervention. Uh, Linda, is that...
2: Uh, yes, I, I w- from what we've heard from uh, CDC, that it would take quite a while, uh, probably three years, up to three years, to develop enough of the virus uh, to immunize the population. Mm, mm.
1: Well, I ca- can't think of any better way. I was a, a participant in the workshop than to ask um, you to share um, the kind of dramatic reading that you uh, provided with uh, folks. And and I think that starts um, with Linda, um, again, in your role as a um, Hancock a county Emergency Management um, official, um, this, dr- this reading starts with you as you reflect on what's happening on a particular day, day one I guess of, of the sequence. So we'll start with you and then I think we go um, to a reporter who's um, going to help us with that. So. Hi.
2: My name is Linda Fury. I'm the Deputy Director for the Hancock County Emergency Management Agency. As I do every work day, I wake at 530 to prepare for the day which includes an update of the news and weather conditions. My thoughts race in my head as I hear from the national news that President Obama has announced confirmed human cases of H5N1 avian influenza being discovered in some major cities in the U.S. The Chinese government has confessed that over 1,000 people have died from the H5N1 virus within the past two days. This virus must have adapted so that it could easily be transmitted between humans. International travel has brought the virus to our shores. My heart races with the implications. It has begun. As if these developments aren't bad enough, I received a cell phone call from the Maine Health Alert Network. I hesitate a moment before keying in my passcode to receive the message that a patient at Eastern Maine Medical Center has a confirmed case of avian influenza. I hurry out the door and head for the office. During the drive, I go over in my mind what is certain to take place today. A call to Kathy Knight, the director of the Northeast Maine Regional Resource Center to see what information has been received from the Maine Maine Center for Disease Control and the Hancock County Hospitals and what information the director has disseminated to them. Calls directly to Hancock County Hospitals to see if they will be locking down and screening incoming patients. A conference call with Maine Emergency Management Agency for additional information and instructions from the Maine Center for Disease Control. Activation of our Emergency Operations Center with review of the pan flu checklist in our Emergency Operations Plan. Most of all, field calls from the media, commissioners, local EMA directors, and the public as to what precautions the public should be taking. Hmm, My head is spinning with the possible scenario of what these days and weeks ahead might bring. By afternoon, we've participated in a conference call from MEMA and received additional information from the Health Alert Network. St. Joseph's reports two cases, Maine Coast Memorial Hospital, three, and one confirmed case at MDI Hospital. What if this had happened during the height of the tourist season with thousands of tourists from a cruise ship? I heard from Kathy Knight, director of the Northeast Maine Regional Resource Center, and she told me that emergency departments, clinics, and doctors' offices are flooded with calls from the worried public. I hope these calls don't cripple our hospital switchboards.
0: I get the call from Matt Murphy, our general manager, at about 7.30. The flu pandemic, which I've always suspected and hoped was just another Y2K scare, is a reality. I'm immediately confronted with my personal anxieties. How quickly can I reach my quasi-adult sons and what should I tell them? How will this affect my husband, who runs the local water department? And why, after all these months of reporting on emergency preparations, don't I have food and water and duct tape stashed in my cellar? I head for the radio station, tuning my car radio to the breaking national news. It's too soon for any details, but what I hear is spooky. Twelve or more states are reporting suspected and confirmed cases of H5N1 flu in both urban and rural areas. Five deaths are confirmed and many more expected. Because there's no vaccine or effective treatment available, and because this virus is spread by airborne droplets from coughs and sneezes, people are being asked not to come to the local hospital emergency rooms or doctor's offices unless they're critically ill. They're being told to stay home from work if possible and keep their children home. There will be no emergency shelters available. I'm imagining panicked runs on Walmart and Hannaford. I'm thinking of all the people who won't go to work today if their kids can't go to school or daycare, including my colleagues in the media as well as firefighters visiting nurses, city administrators, trash collectors, pharmacists. Things are a little edgy when I get to the radio station. Safety kits containing face masks, gloves, and hand sanitizer will be distributed as soon as we locate the key to the closet where they're stored. But some reporters have already left, impatient to get out and cover the story. I feel uneasy at the thought of my co-workers entrusting their lives to those flimsy purple gloves and paper face masks. Do they know how to put them on? Are these even the right kind of masks? I'm pining to see what's happening at our local hospital, but one of our volunteers with a tape recorder has been sent out to make the local rounds. I've been assigned to stay at my desk and find out what's going on statewide, but I'm not having much luck. All the numbers I have for Dora Mills and Christine Perkins from the Maine Centers for Disease Control send my calls directly to voicemail and then inform me that the mailbox is full. The MEMA office is likewise unreachable, although there is at least a message box there. At about noon, I call the public affairs office at Eastern Maine Medical Center. Two patients have tested positive for H5N1 flu virus. The hospital won't release names or even hometowns, but one is a middle-aged male who recently returned from visiting his daughter in China. He drove himself to the ER early this morning. Yesterday afternoon when he was beginning to feel feverish, he ran a number of errands in Bangor, including visiting his children's daycare center. The other patient is a young nurse who makes home visits and has been in close contact with a number of elderly people at a local assisted living facility. Both patients, healthy until yesterday morning, are on mechanical ventilators and in critical condition. I keep trying to reach Dora Mills or Christine Perkins.
1: I just want to remind listeners that they're listening to a dramatic reading. Um, we don't want a, a War of the Worlds Part 2 here, so I just do want to remind folks that this is a dramatic reading. And next, we do hear from someone playing the role of Christine Perkins, who's Director of the Division of Public Health Systems in the main CDC
3: i got the call at about five a.m. from the federal cdc that h five n one was spreading rapidly in humans including several cases confirmed here in the u.s after a five-minute phone consultation with colleagues at the Maine cdc the Maine emergency management agency and the governor's office we agreed to activate the pan- we agreed to activate the pandemic protocols we've been working so hard to refine over the past several years governor baldacci has declared a state of extreme public health emergency which allows us to lift a number of rules and laws to make it easier to protect the well-being of Maine people. Among the immediate changes are the lifting of regulations that govern how many patients hospitals can admit, allowing them to fill up with as many sick people as they can reasonably care for. Of course, their ability to care for patients is dependent on many factors, including the availability of nurses, housekeepers, and kitchen workers. In the case of this virulent flu, many patients will also need intensive respiratory treatments and mechanical ventilators in order to survive. And, of course, the fact that we're in a pandemic doesn't stop the flow of other medical needs, heart attacks, broken bones, emergency appendectomies, and new babies coming into the world. Hospitals will have to make some very tough, to, some very tough choices, and as a former practicing physician, I know those decisions will be excruciating. The governor has also signed an emergency order allowing patients to be treated in non-healthcare facilities, such as schools or community halls, in case all available hospital beds are filled. Again, it's unclear what kind of staff, equipment, or supplies will be available to care for these sick people, but at least it won't be against the law to create a safe place for them. We also put a freeze on all supplies of antiviral medications, such as Tamiflu, the only drug thought to be effective in, combat, in combating the effects Of the H5N1 virus. This means that pharmacies that currently have Tamiflu in stock will be unable to distribute it until we determine who should get it. We know this will include some but not all of those people with documented infection. We must also decide whether to set aside some of what we have, reserving some for key responders who may get sick later, people like health care providers, police and fire crews, public officials and others whose work is critical to the functioning of our society during this crisis. By mid-morning, we have staffed a 24-hour phone line to answer questions from healthcare care providers, and we've initiated a round-the-clock system for monitoring the spread of identified cases of H5N1 in Maine. Along with Dr. Mills and other members of the state's emergency response team, I've moved my own operations to MEMA's Emergency Operations Center near the Augusta Civic Center and set up a 24-hour-a-day schedule for myself and a few key staff. For at least the next few days and perhaps much longer, we will live here, sleeping on cots and eating whatever food is supplied. I will be separated from my husband and our young children, but I have the comfort of knowing that we've set up our own family plan to be ready for this pandemic. I have to trust they'll all be safe. I know reporters are trying to reach me, but my contact numbers have been changed, and almost all access to me and other senior government officials involved with the emergency is now through Mema. For now, the media will have to be content with the information we issue by fax and email, but within the next 24 hours, we will begin twice-daily press briefings and conference calls.
1: And next, we hear from uh, Dana Reed, playing Dana Reed, town manager
5: of Bar Harbor, in this dramatic reading. I wake to radio reports of human-to-human H5N1 transmission in this country. The day I hoped would never come has arrived. I hope we're ready. I call Dave Rand, Bar Harbor's fire chief and deputy emergency management director and brief him on the little I know so far. He is opening the emergency operations center and convening the town's department heads, now our emergency response team. I hurry to the office. A Health Alert Network report is on my incoming email. I await information and directions from Dora Mills or Christine Perkins at the Maine CDC. I'll look over the pandemic flu response plan MDI governments have been working on for years. We've tried so hard to be prepared, but there is no way we could anticipate the way it will actually play out. We just have to hope the plan is flexible enough to meet the challenge. I email the MDI Pan Flu Working Group to set up the conference call which will start implementation of our pandemic plan and the League of Towns mutual aid agreements. Becky Byers-Basso calls. She too is waiting for information from Augusta. Meanwhile, she wants to know what the town is doing and what the public needs to know at this early stage. Be calm, are my words of wisdom to the public. I repeat the mantra I've been saying for months. Make sure you have two weeks' supply of necessities. Stay informed through newspaper, TV, radio, cable access, and 211 and the World Wide Web, and don't panic. Be calm. Unfortunately, I know panic will likely rule the day. The public, my staff, and the vulnerable, poor, marginalized people who depend on the town's help will all be alarmed by this news. I personally feel some panic as I try to reach my daughter in Hawaii, my son in Southwest Harbor, and my elderly parents out of state. I wonder how prepared their communities are and whether they are ready themselves.
1: And finally, um, a reading from um, Doug,
4: reading the role of James Willis, the chief of police in the town of Mount Desert. While I was getting ready for work this morning, the on-duty officer called me and advised me that the national media is reporting human-to-human transmission of the bird flu. I wonder what I was thinking when I decided that becoming a police chief was a good idea. (laughs) On my way to the station, I confer with the deputy patrol sergeant and we review our areas of concern. Our priority areas, first, reassuring that the public and counteracting the urge to panic uh, secondly, managing traffic and crowds at grocery stores, pharmacies, and other retail outlets. Third, maintaining order at hospitals and healthcare settings. Fourth, managing crowds scrambling for vaccine when, it, if, and when it becomes available. And last, but certainly not least, protecting our employees from the virus itself as well from the physical and psychological trauma associated with this crisis. Flashbacks of 9/11 enter my mind. I anticipate a barrage of calls from the media and I will use this opportunity to get information out to the public. Fortunately, the department has a good relationship with the media, and we've worked together for long enough that I'm confident that they will be responsive. I do worry, however, that any message I try to convey to the public intended to maintain order will be overshadowed by the reporter's description of the potential danger of this situation. I call my family. All of the off-duty officers we can reach are notified and assigned. By policy, employees can be ordered to report to duty. Although it can be tough to get a response for routine overtime, my experience has been that officers don't hesitate to report for duty when a crisis exists. I anticipate 75% callback response within the first two to three hours. The sergeant is tasked with making assignments of personnel. With our small department, we will likely only have two or three people, at most, working at any given time. I will consult with the Fire Chief and the Chiefs of Bar Harbor and Southwest Police Departments to coordinate our efforts island-wide. We will have to make constant adjustments with our assignments as determined by reported problems. As partners with the Hancock County Emergency Management Agency, the town works closely with the county as well as other municipal responders. We will relocate our Emergency Operations Center to a central location determined by the incident command structure, and we will await word from the main Emergency Management Agency.
1: So in in the dramatic reading that ends day 1 and I want to thank our our participants for doing that and remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning we're talking about pandemic on the radio lessons for community communities preparing for a pandemic avian um, influenza. Our guests include Doug Michael, who is executive director of Healthy Acadia, Dana Reed, town manager of Bar Harbor, Janice von Brook is with us by phone. She's at the Jackson Laboratory, and Linda Fury, deputy director of the Hancock County Emergency Management Office. Um, Janice, I'll go go to you. How um, did how did the, how did the um, reading end? What were, were some of the other elements that you recall from the from the script as the uh, flu? kind of proceeded and and uh the dramatic reading took place.
3: Well, uh, people got very tired. I mean, as we went through the reading, um we went to the the end of I think 2 weeks and then maybe a month later and you could hear in the role play how people you know when you respond to an emergency and it's a couple days long, you sort of can keep kind of uh the hope alive, but when you when you've been go- at it for a long time, you could you could hear in the role play how people were getting um, more frightened. They were running out of supplies. They were tired. They were worried about their families. And I think that was what was um, very uh, important. I- made a great impact, I think, on me, certainly when I first heard it, and I think it makes a great impact on other people when you start to realize how long this could go on.
1: Mm. Any of the rest of you here in the studio um, have anything to to, to uh, recall about the dramatic reading and how it kind of uh, played out? Linda, anything that you recall from, from that?
2: Well, unfortunately, I wasn't able well, to. Well, that's right. right. <laughs> so yes. I'm not sure about that group, but I have seen this uh, reading <coughs> done before, and I think Janice is right in that. Uh, it really impresses upon people that resources aren't coming from outside as they do in a a disaster that's um, just affecting that particular community or even that state Uh, and that's where emergency management, uh, particularly at the county level, can call the state and call for federal assets and um, in this type of a situation that would affect the country, uh, we wouldn't have those assets available so we really have to look at the community level and um, staffing uh, is quite lean in emergency <laughs> management. And uh, so it would be a very long-term event, and uh, it would be exhausting. Mm. So uh, that, that is the situation. I'm
1: going to get a couple more comments from Janice, and then I'm going to let her go so we can open up our phone lines. But Janice, at the Jackson Lab, how would, how would you actually um, mobilize um, your teams to uh, take care of, of a situation like this
3: mm-hmm. well we would we would certainly also follow uh, incident command system and um,
5: uh, when
3: when it became apparent that we were sort of at day one, which this role play was telling us that we knew the pandemic was here, uh, we would set up our own um, emergency operations center, our eOC and that would be staffed by our crisis manager who would be our c o o and um, each department would um, open up their own pandemic response plans. In other words, they will, will have um, indicated what their critical functions are, and um, we will all have to work together to um, cover other people's jobs. For instance, um, we are looking now at what our critical functions are and who else can do our job if it's a critical uh, function. And we were also going to set up a staffing coordination center so that if, for instance, I'm well but my job isn't critical, they can reassign me to a critical area. And we're trying now to work on getting SOPs written for those critical functions so that other people could take over if necessary.
1: And I suppose communication with um, your employees is, is critical.
3: It is uh, certainly critical, yes. So
1: how, do, how would you handle something like that?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly would We would communicate with our employees many ways. We will have a call tree. We will communicate by an all-employee email list. We can communicate certainly um, through our departments, through overhead. If people are in the buildings, we certainly can communicate with them. We have a website, an internal website that we would communicate through. And, um, it, of course, that depends on many things, how it, how it comes about. In other words, if, you know, if, you're, if everyone's at work, it's a work day rather than a weekend. But uh, communicating all the information and consistent information to our employees is, is most critical mm-hmm. so that people know what to expect, what they should be doing, and what they shouldn't be doing.
1: Great. Well, I'm going to let you go. You, um, you're certainly welcome to listen to the rest of the program by uh, phone and call us if um, we miss something or you have something to, to add to the conversation. Thanks to you, Janice uh, Von Brooke from Thank the Jackson Laboratory. Thank you very much.
4: Thank
3: you.
1: And those of you who are listening to this uh, uh, program are welcome to call us at this point, 1-866-625-9378. That's one 625 9378 or locally 469-050 zero. And if you've got questions or comments for our guests here in the studio, Doug Michael of Healthy Acadia, Dana Reed, Town Manager of Bar Harbor, and Linda Fury, Deputy Director of the Hancock County Emergency uh, Management Office, about um, the possible um, or the likely uh, event of a flu pandemic um, and what you might be doing as a family um, or as an employer. Um, As you worked on this, what things became obvious as you put this workshop together that you didn't expect um, anything that, that surprised you as people responded to what, what you were saying um, did you learn anything from um, personally about flu pandemic and have you made different plans as, as a family or as a as a as a community
5: one of, the, one of the things i learned and quite frankly i was quite surprised at how interested people were in this topic and. Uh, that's not to say they shouldn't be. I mean, to mm. keep in mind some of the statistics. If you don't mind, I'd like to run down mm, those. Please. And that's not to scare people, but just to keep people educated about how it could affect us. Uh, just in little old Bar Harbor, population 5,000, um, we are liable to have 2,500 people infected mm. if it is the same level as, say, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, that means that outpatient medical care, people needing to go to the doctor. There can be 835 of those during just maybe a six or eight week interval. The uh, 184 would be hospitalized in our hospital that only has 25 beds. Hmm. So, uh, you know, these are some pretty substantial numbers. Uh, we can expect 40% of our employees not to show up for work. About 20% of them will be sick. Uh, the other 20% will be home taking care of their sick children or, or spouse. Mm. So you know, this is have a major effect on the community, and I was pleased to see that there was some interest in this out there uh, because planning and preparedness is what's going to get us through any emergency, but this one in particular since as— Linda mentioned, we're going to be on our, our own. we are not be able to call up Big Brother and have him come bail us out. Mm-hmm. It's a time when Mainers are really going to have to use the self-reliance that they know so well.
1: Mm. As we heard um, part of the dramatic reading, we heard reference to uh, a two-week supply of of things, um, face masks. Linda, what advice would you give listeners today about how they might think about this in their own lives?
2: Well, I think um, typically for any disaster, we promote that people have on hand a three-day supply of food and water. But we know this is going to be a far-reaching and a longer event. And so even two weeks is uh, probably a little on the lean side. Um, And I think people um, need to really change their mindset because they're used to um, going out and buying maybe just a a few days' supply of food or, um, you know, not having anything on hand. And we need to change that mindset so that people, uh, once again, maybe have a little bit more supplies in the pantry like they did back in 1918. We don't do that today because everything's so accessible and, and transportation modes, you know, make it available so that we can stop on the way home from work and pick up something mm. for dinner and and not really um, plan to have those supplies. So um, in any emergency preparedness plan, we we do promote having a supply of food and water on hand. But for a pandemic, we would look at people having a little more extensive... supplies.
1: Mm-hmm. I'll make sure that you list um, some good resources for listeners um, towards the end of the program. Um, one of the things that really impressed me about the workshop was the way that, um, in, in, a, in that particular case, Hannaford's, um, as a major food supply, had, had pre-thought all, all of this work. Linda, you want to tell us a little bit about how you might be working with um, uh, grocery stores and other kind of critical providers?
2: Actually, uh, the county directors uh, did see a program that Hannaford put on at uh, the main emergency management agency for the county directors, and they did outline their emergency plan for uh, a pandemic particularly. And uh, it was very um, pleasing to see that they had taken – the initiative and uh, they're used to responding to disasters they do assist when there are disasters and have in the past uh, but they've talked about uh, changing their mix of um, products that they would have in the store uh, how they would distribute that how they would um, possibly close one store to keep another open if their uh, employees uh, weren't able to staff as many stores and I think it was um, very proactive of them to really go through this process and look at the product mix and, and what would be available and what wouldn't and making sure that their pharmacies would be uh, open and available to the public.
1: Mm. And one, one of the things that they <coughs> talked about, excuse me, <coughs> um, was how they would actually handle customers. Um, they might not even allow customers in the store. The, Correct do, do yeah. you remember
4: how, how they were talking about handling uh, customers uh, Doug, do you remember like well, I believe that they had um, established a protocol where they mm-hmm. would <clears throat> actually take some, either telephone uh, orders and and have people set up a delivery station perhaps in the uh, behind the store and front in the parking lot and people would drive up and pick up a box of goods but it, it was uh, <clears throat> I think what it speaks to is is sort of a level of thinking through, Uh, on an organizational level, how do we conduct our business? How do we fulfill our community mission in the event of this new world that we would all be living in 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 a pandemic situation? And I think that's the kind of thinking that we as individuals, citizens, as families, that we as organizations representing, whether they're for-profits or non for profits or or public agencies, we all need to think about how do we conduct business in this new world that we might be faced with, and and that's really the basis for the kind of organizational plans that you hear you heard we heard from Janice von Brook that the Jackson Laboratory has, has been uh, doing tremendous work planning. I know the College of the Atlantic, in our neck of the woods, has also been planning as have several towns, the town of Bar Harbor. Mount Desert Island Hospital, and all the hospitals in Maine have been, uh, early on, have been focusing on this kind of planning. But with that said, with all these great strides, we should also mention that we as a nation and we as communities and we as individuals are woefully unprepared for public health disasters and emergencies of this scale. So we have a fair amount of work to do, each of us, in, in, in educating the public about the simple things that people can do, and how this begins at home. Right. The 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 uh,
1: the notion of of health providers, um, they have to have their own emergency kind of planning. They can't just provide because they, they're going to have sick people as well, um, sick, sick staff members as well. So they've got to think about those kinds of things. I'll list our phone numbers one more time. one 625 9378 or four six nine zero five zero zero. 500 Perhaps you've got a question or a comment for I guess as we talk about pandemic on the radio, lessons for communities on preparing for a pandemic avian influenza. Um, where, where w- would you like to be going? You're still meeting as a committee, I understand. Um, w- what are you tackling now, um,
5: as you as you think about the future? Well, we have a, no- a number of different teams that are part of our working group, and uh, the one that sponsored the forum is our community outreach and education team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have teams dealing with uh, the emergency operations center. How to organize ourselves across the the region, uh, as as well as public information and so forth.
1: Mm. So you're, you're you're you see this as an ongoing process to kind of keep people in touch with this issue and how to be better prepared.
5: Well, certainly, and even though this is the <coughs> focus of our current emergency preparedness, I, I personally see this as. Mm. Emergency preparedness of any type, right. knowing the responders, uh, knowing what their capabilities and resources are, in the event of any type of an emergency, this will help the MDI community uh, respond most effectively.
1: Great. Uh, I'll list our phone numbers one more time: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And we do have a caller. Go ahead with your question or comment, please.
4: Hi. This is Doug. Magistrate Court, and I was wondering what the status of the development of any kind of vaccine for the avian flu uh, is. Where Where does that stand?
1: Okay, great question. Thanks for your call this morning. We'll see if we've got some response. Unfortunately, Christine Perkins of the uh, Maine Center for D- uh, Disease Control couldn't be with us this morning, and uh, she'd probably be the most up on this. Mm-hmm. We'll see if, if anybody else has. A, Doug, do you have a sense of, of where we are in terms of developing um, uh, vaccines for? a possible
4: uh, flu like this? Well, what I can tell you that I do know is that the, uh, the US government has invested um, in this past five years, some seven to $8 billion in pandemic flu preparedness. And much of that money has been invested in research and development of vaccines. So there is some effort to, uh, to think about how we intervene early um, and I I am not a, uh, this is not my area of expertise, so I can't sp- tell you too much more. Although the, what I understand is that the specificity of the vaccine, it will not, we won't know until we know exactly what virus we are dealing with, how to develop a vaccine that combats very effectively that spe- specific virus. So there is work being done to develop Classes of vaccines that may have some effectiveness, but we don't believe they will have a high degree of effectiveness. And and at best, we hope that they will sort of minimize the severity of the disease uh, as it individual as it impacts individuals, and may minimize the spread of that disease. Um, so I think in the best of all worlds, we will have some some vaccines developed, and that will help us develop more specific vaccines when we have an outbreak but we know there are other strategies that will be more effective in limiting the spread of disease and um, in terms of social distancing in terms of people's personal behavior let's come back to that question of what you're calling social distancing in just a moment would
1: we have another call go ahead with your question or comment please
3: hello hello good
1: good morning yes go ahead please
3: um I have read that in China, the people who regularly consume a pickled um, vegetable called kimchi um, seem to have immunity to the SARS. It's just something I've read uh, and another avenue to explore for people to look at uh, possible immunity or immune system uh, Mm -hmm.
1: support. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank, thanks for your call this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, 1-866-625-9378 or locally four six nine zero five zero zero. as we talk about community response to the flu pandemic. Um, the avian flu uh, is likely to, to come um, because people are t- um, um, in <clears throat> contact with chickens, and eventually mm-hmm. the virus will develop the ability to spread human to human. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug, you mentioned this concept of social distancing, and uh, maybe you could explain that a
4: little bit. Sure, sure, and, and if, if I might, I just might respond very briefly yes. to the, the, the last caller's um, information. I, I I don't know anything specifically about any, any evidence of kimchi or, or other sort of dietary factors. Um, having any efficacy in terms of preventing the spread of a virus. There is um, kimchi. I think one of the ingredients in kimchi is, is a vinegar, is a, is a acidic, an acid. Mm. And uh, there, there is evidence that certain acids and cabbages and things like sauerkraut can have a disinfectant um, impact in terms of some types of bacteria, but what we are dealing with when we're talking about SARS or we're dealing with in terms of flu or pandemic, we're dealing with a virus. And um, it's highly unlikely that uh, a food substance such as uh, cabbage or or kimchi would have any impact on killing a flu virus. Okay, great. And Um, social distancing? So in terms of what we can do and what we know we can do, there are things like hand-washing. Now, hand-washing, is now that's where i would put my money <laughs> sounds simple but you know we can have tremendous impact on limiting the spread of disease uh, whether it's a virus or a bacterial based disease by washing our hands and washing our hands well and we know for instance in studies of hospitals and healthcare facilities where there is diseases that are coming into those facilities and we have to do everything we can do to minimize the spread from patient to patient or even from provider uh, from doctor and nurse to patient, that the more frequently and the better we wash our hands, we have great success rates in reducing the transmission of disease. Um, so that's one strategy that we can invoke. Another uh, is, uh, is the way that we cough and sneeze as individuals. Many of us um, my age and older were brought up that it was polite to cough or sneeze in your hands. And, and we know nowadays that that's probably the worst thing you can do. So the appropriate technique is to actually to take, bend your arm and to cough or sneeze right into your, the crook of your arm, right into the elbow, the inside of your elbow. And by doing that, the germs that you emit will die in the fabric and you won't spread them to your hands, which then you touch your eyes, your nose, your and you touch other people by shaking their hands and other objects so you can greatly limit the transmission of disease by the way you cough or sneeze. Uh the third thing we can do when we talk about limiting person to person spread of disease is we can we can invoke and particularly in broad scale public health emergencies social distancing. We can close schools, we can close daycare facilities. We can um, we can uh postpone or limit places where people might normally congregate and the amount of public contact that people have with each other. Now, as you can imagine, this is an extreme measure and can and has other unintended consequences. How long can we go with closed schools or or not having our grocery stores open? Um, but these are these are things we can do when an outbreak occurs. And the things that we can do as individuals and families Uh, Washing our hands frequently, coughing or sneezing into our sleeves, and limiting uh, where we go, particularly when we are sick, not sending your children to school when they are sick, helps prevent the spread of their disease to other children. So we have to think, um, I think, from ourselves outward. Uh, and begin with changing some of our own behaviors. Mm. And Dana, that's
1: what some of the point that you were making. As you prepare for this particular
4: um, uh, emergency,
1: you're preparing for all emergencies and developing some best practices around all emergencies. That's
5: exactly right. This is, uh, for example, one of the things that this has allowed us to do is to form a mutual aid agreement between all eight towns of the MDI League of towns, or seven of the eight, anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, all except the cranberries, which would allow us to uh, cooperate with each other, to as far as administration, as far as um, general assistance, our welfare programs, mm. uh, as far as even public works employees, and and police and fire employees. So that these can be shared between communities as needed. As you can imagine, you know, if your fire department, forty percent of them are out sick, how do you respond effectively to a fire? Uh, if 40% of your ambulance attendants are out, at the same time, when you're getting this huge number of calls because of an epidemic or pandemic, then you need to cooperate between communities. And, and so that's been very effective.
1: And it, it probably is fair to say that most communities don't necessarily have those good, close working relationships with their neighbors um, to allow for that kind of cooperation. I mean, the, I think you've got a, a wonderful situation, but not all communities are, are there. Linda, is that fair?
2: I would say that's that's very a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the state law does require every municipality to have a local EMA director and to have an emergency plan. And uh, we don't often see the cooperation that we've seen on uh, MDI with the communities uh, surrounding each other to um, work together to develop those plans and, and to uh, assist each other with identifying their resources. and um, So we would encourage communities to do that. And we'd also encourage individuals to volunteer to help their communities to develop their plans and uh, to assist in identifying those resources, and and sometimes businesses have a particular resource that might benefit the town in a particular type of a disaster, and if they come forward and and make that known to the community, it makes that planning effort a lot easier.
1: and you're doing some um, interesting work. Um, you're actually thinking like um, we found in the Katrina situation that people's pets aren't necessarily taken care of. And you've got an initiative happening in Hancock County to think about that. Tell us a little bit about we that. We do.
2: We're currently trying to develop a community animal response team, a rescue team, uh, who can go out and help uh, with rescues f- with, uh, of pets, of household pets during a disaster. And also to help with the sheltering of those pets if people report to uh, a shelter during time of an emergency. And um, we encourage anybody who is interested in becoming a member of that uh, community animal response team to get in touch with our office, uh, the Hancock County Emergency Management Agency. And uh, we are in the phone book. And uh, you can also find us on our website, and that's if you go to Hancock County Emergency Management Agency and just Google that. I'm sure you'll come up with our uh, website. Also, uh, there's a great deal of information on the state website, which is www.mainprepares.com. Uh, for pandemic flu or any type of emergency disaster, family preparedness, that's a good site to visit.
4: Mm. Doug, do you want to list some resources very briefly? Sure, a couple of other websites Um people can go to uh, locally. uh, And we have at Healthy Acadia, we have healthyacadia.org, and we've built a pandemic flu education page onto that website where many of our local education and outreach efforts in in partnership with the American Red Cross, with the College of the Atlantic, Acadia National Park, uh, the local towns, the Southwest Harbor and Tremont Ambulance Service, uh, the Mount Desert Nursing Service, um, We're compiling these resources. We're putting it on that page so people can download a community education guide. So if they have a a group that they uh, work with, whether it's an employer group or a social network group, uh, they can share information using that education guide. We also have um, information on home emergency kits, how to build one, where to buy one. Uh, There's also a a very interesting and humorous five-minute video people can click on and watch where they can see demonstrated uh, coughing and sneezing technique (laughs) at its best. Um, Some other resources, mainflu.gov, is sort of one-stop shopping, and there are some great links to national resources on that website. And then the uh, national website is pandemicflu.gov.
1: Great. Well, I want to thank all of you for being with us as we talk about something that's, that's very serious and um, sometimes feels a little distant to people. You're bringing it right home. I appreciate that. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support, and we particularly appreciate all of your support during the recent fund drive. We earned the goal that we set, and we added 100 new members. That's great. Join us from 10 to 11 on the 2nd and 4th Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Koranak on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest in the studio, Doug Michael, Executive Director of Healthy Acadia, Dana Reed, Town Manager of Bar Harbor. Linda Fury, Deputy Director of the Hancock County Emergency Management Office. And we also were joined by phone by Janice Von Brook, um, Operations um, Personnel at the Jackson Laboratory. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for um, both engineering and taking part in our dramatic reading this morning. Stay tuned for On the Ring, Wing, with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host, for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. ¶¶
5: Support for WERU comes from our listeners, individual and family members, business members,